Thank you, Daryl and Tina and the Welches for lighting the candles. First Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to start in verse 4 and we're going to work our way all the way down through verse 10. Uh, foundations are important. I don't know about you, but I was thinking through all the sermons that I've heard and the articles I've read that talk about the importance of a Christian foundation that's being built on Jesus. And so we know this. If you've been a Christian for a while, certainly you've heard sermons or messages or things that talk about why foundations are so important. So I was thinking about this and thinking about the text of of Scripture that we have this morning, and and, uh, my mind wandered off to uh, the musical Hamilton. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, there's a few of us artistic ones, and then you Neanderthals are still lagging behind. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's it's not a Christian thing by any stretch of the imagination, but it's this creative uh, storytelling, a musical of Alexander Hamilton's life. It's won a bunch of awards, and, and much of the first half of the story is about winning the, the Revolutionary War from, from Alexander Hamilton's perspective, and then the second half is about setting up a governmental system. And they sing and dance and tell you how that's more difficult than winning the war. And at one point it shows Alexander and Aaron Burr, his nemesis of sorts, um, and they have a scene where they both find out they're going to have a child, and so they sing this song, they just dance. I don't think they did that in real life. I just want to make that disclaimer. But in the retelling of it, they did. And in the song, it's basically about how they're going to set a strong foundation for the government, not because of what they want, but for their kids. They don't want their kids to have to go through the chaos of a war. They don't want their kids to have to fight for their freedom in that way. And so what they're having these children did is it forced these two men to think in longer terms as opposed to shorter terms. Setting things up and making sure that they understand why things are in place and that there's a foundation that they can build upon for this country. I think it's interesting that Hamilton is where that is being told completely secular, no Christianity wrapped up in in that retelling of the story whatsoever. Yet even our secular friends can recognize that having a strong foundation is something that's important. And I think if we talk to people around us that we all desire to have a strong foundation, but now we may decide that certain foundations are better than others. We may want a strong financial foundation, and that may be what people who are worldly long for. It could be moving less or it could be moving more. For a lot of us, what we want is for our kids to have a better life than what we did. And so whatever we didn't like about our childhood upbringing, we don't want our kids to deal with that. And so we, we set this foundation, this structure that's going to prevent our kids from from having to do that. There's all sorts of things that we can say, this is what the foundation is supposed to be, and this is what it's not supposed to be, and our world's going to tell us, these are the things that are important, and these are the things that aren't important. But the reality that you and I and really every human being needs to understand is everything we do is based on something. I mean, that play is a secular play from New York City featuring modern ideas and social issues that they want to be addressed, yet it recognizes that our values, that our morals, that our standards, that our beliefs are not just things that pop up, but rather are things that are rooted to other stuff that dwells in our hearts. It's what we value most. And that those things are often shaped by things that are outside of us. 
Maybe it's an experience or a feeling or a sense of right and wrong. Our values, our beliefs, our morals are attached to something. And so over the course of the history, we can look back at, at the history of the, the world, what we know about it, and we can see that certain cultures valued certain things over other things. We can look at different nations and say different nations value certain things over other nations. We can look at states and we can say certain states value certain things over other things, that those things are all tied to various things and conditions and feelings and all of these criteria that come into our life, that there is a real rhyme and a reason why those things are happening. So this foundational idea is important, and and there's nobody who's going to say having a strong foundation is not important. Where we're going to argue is what is a strong foundation? What should it be? What shouldn't it be? We can look up at history, and we can see there's times that the, the earth shakes in certain ways. Did you feel the earthquake this week? Where it throws us off of foundations, where it cripples things. And so as we look at, at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 this morning, what I hope the Lord will do in our hearts and yours and in mine is cause us to make sure we know what we believe, make sure we know why we believe, and make sure that we understand that we are founded, that we are centered, and that we are rooted on a foundation of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and then we'll pray and we will dive in. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, as spiritual houses, are being built up to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, I see a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will not be put to shame, so honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word, they were destined to do this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy a nation, a people for his own possession, possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, I'm grateful that we can come to you on Sundays like this when school has been let out, when the Christmas season is rapidly approaching. God, it's a great time for us to remember that in the midst of tinsel, in the midst of lights, in the midst of decorations, in the midst of carols and cool weather and holiday cheer, that this season is not about us. Father, we know that Jesus was probably not born on December 25th, but it marks a day for us to celebrate the finished work of the cross. It marks a day for us to remember, to be reminded that you came to us, the immortal God. You made yourself mortal for us. And that the ultimate gift is you, Jesus. Born of a virgin, you lived a perfect life. You died a death that we deserve so that your gospel, your good news would be on full display. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for an unshakable gospel foundation. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So nearly 
all of the New Testament letters. If you've read your Bible, maybe you're at the end of your reading plan, getting ready to start another one at the the first of the, the year. If you read through the New Testament letters, almost all of the New Testament letters have this pattern that takes place. You have an introduction. Hey, this is Paul, and I'm writing to so-and-so, or this is to so-and-so from Paul. There's a line of thanksgiving. I give thanks to you. Even for the churches Paul's mad at, he writes this little thanksgiving to them. Galatians, Corinthians. And then if you keep going, we get to the bulk, the body of the letter, and at the end of it, there's a conclusion. So-and-so sends greetings, and so-and-so to remind so-and-so of this and of that. And in almost all of the New Testament letters, what you'll see in the body of the letter, when we get past the introduction, we get past the, the conclusion, in between those two things is almost all of them, Paul, Peter, Luke, everybody who writes a letter in the New Testament, the first half of it is this theological foundation for what they want to tell the people that they're writing to. And the second half is the practical implications of that theological foundation. So if you've paid attention in 1 Peter, what you've seen is, is P- Peter has addressed these people, but he hasn't really like said specific things to them yet. This is how this plays out in your life. And this passage we're covering now is kind of the end of the theological section. And next week we'll pick up with the practical implications of what Peter is saying. All of that matters to us because you and I are not a first century Jewish and Gentile audience. We live in Ira. In a different century, I get confused on how to name them. Like the, around 32nd century, I think. And that's not a mistake. God in all of his infinite wisdom, God in all of his infinite power, had it been his will, could have placed you and I in these churches that this was originally written to, but he didn't. He put us here, now, for our purpose and for our place here in Ira. So if we're going to understand how to apply the text of Scripture accurately to our lives, we must understand that this was written to these people first so that we can apply it to our lives correctly. We can make Scripture say anything that we want to make it say. That's not what reading the Bible is about. It's understanding what the Bible is saying and how we can live in submission to it. Because there's some things coming up in First Peter that are going to sound really, really weird to, to, to our ears. Peter's going to tell slaves to honor their masters, not to flee for freedom. Peter's going to call women the weaker vessels. That's in First Peter. And there's a whole section in First Peter that's one of the most confusing sections in all of the New Testament. People fight about it all of the time. For centuries, Christians have argued over what the meaning of this is. And I'm really not certain what it is myself. We'll get there when we get there. But it talks like Jesus is saying, basically it's asking the question, what happened to Jesus after he died and before he resurrected? And the way First Peter writes, the way it's recorded in Peter, is it kind of sounds like he went to hell. Or, or, but, but then on the cross, he says, today I'll be with you. That's in First Peter. We need to understand the context of this. And in the midst of all of that, there's passages that make it sound like baptism saves us. Like, do we have that wrong? Do we need to reevaluate those things? All of that stuff is important, but we have to start with the first half of First Peter. We can't just jump to the second half. It comes after the foundation has been laid. Far too often we read our Bibles with the question, what does this mean to me, as the first question we ask, and oftentimes we end up with really weird answers when we do that. We must understand that there's this foundation. 
And so Peter walked us through this foundation. It's based on a living hope. It's based on Jesus. And Jesus is a living hope because he is not dead. He was resurrected. So our faith is our salvation. And it's not resting on a dead man. It's resting on a resurrected Savior. And this living God, for his glory, lavishes grace, lavishes mercy on his people, making them his people, not by birth, but through faith. So hard times come not as a way of God forgetting about you and forgetting about me. Hard times come not as a way of God punishing us, although sometimes we make dumb decisions and they need to be punished. Oftentimes, hard times come as a way of strengthening our faith. If we can hold to Christ when things aren't good, we can trust that our faith is in an actual Savior who can save us. When the ground rumbles... If we're on the foundation of Jesus, we don't fall apart. And God often uses difficult times to draw us to himself, to wake us up from the monotony of life. Peter calls us to be holy, to be distinct, to be set apart because of this salvation, because of this faith that we're not going to fit in with the world if we're actual believers in Jesus Christ. We're called to love one another. It's hard to know who to love if we're not committed to a tangible local church. That's what Peter is talking about to these churches, these people that he's writing to. We're called to value the eternal word of the Lord, the gospel, more than silver and gold. This means for us, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, that there's things that we should do and that there's things that we should not do. And everything that Peter lists on the do not do list, I don't know if you caught this last week, is things that hinder our relationships with one another. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. That cause us not to trust one another. And if we can't trust one another, we're not going to love one another. And it causes us to taste and see that the Lord is good. He doesn't say, trust that your grandma tasted and saw that the Lord is good, so take her opinion for it. He says, no, you need to taste of it and see. Faith is private. You must partake in it as an individual, but what we see in this is that faith is never alone. So verse 4, that kind of sets the context for us. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. Remember, the you here is a y'all. It's plural. Y'all come to him, a living stone. It's with all the theological foundation in mind. He says, y'all come to Jesus, and and he describes Jesus as a living stone. When I was at OBU, I took a class in in world religions, and I've shared a little bit about it, but a part of this class was we had to go uh, visit different religious places, see what they were doing, and then we had to write a paper on on the differences of it. And so I ended up going with the class, and we went to a Hindu temple, and went to a Muslim mosque. And in the temple, when we walked in, there were statues everywhere. It was, it was crazy. Uh, and, and, and there was this, um, like a stage, it's kind of like our stage, but it, it wrapped around. They didn't have a cubicle for the organ and the fake, or the piano and the fake organ. It was just kind of wrapped around. And then you could, up on the stage were these, like, house-looking dills, these little cubbies, and they were filled with these ornate and very large statues that had flowers on them. Some had food. They had all sorts of things scattered upon the stage. And then out, like where you guys are sitting, there was no pews. It was just open. And along the walls, there was all these other statues. They had a little deal that looked like a restaurant vent hood so they could offer burnt sacrifices and not make the place be smoky. I remember these little figures, these little statues they had around, and they were named after the planets. 
And so we were talking to the, I can't remember his name, I can't remember what they call him, the, the holy man. We weren't allowed like to stand where I'm standing on their stage. This is holy. You can't touch it. Only he could. And so we were standing down there, and he was talking to us up here. I watched a guy behind us who, who kind of crawled on his hands and knees just to touch the top of the stage, just to get a little bit of holiness. And so we, he was talking to us. He's answering questions. He's talking about these statues. And what they believe about these statues is that they're not just statues, that their gods, little g, false gods, exist a little bit in each of those literal statues. If we think about the original audience to this, they're living in, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It's under Roman authority. And so to be Roman authority meant you had to believe that Caesar was a lowercase g god. There would be carved images of him around. And it would be against the law to, to think that he wasn't a god or think that your god was, was better. That's a part of the reason why Christians are not going to fit into the world. If that's what our government says, then we're going to say no. So what Peter is saying is he's saying this foundation that we're meant to cling to is not built with stone statues that don't do anything. This foundation starts with the living stone, Jesus. But this stone is rejected by people and chosen and honored by God. Just think about Jesus' life. If we step back and just look, he was born to two rural teenagers. The mother claimed to be a virgin and gave birth to a son. I was a youth minister long enough to know that's not how that works. He grew up with no home, no money said some crazy things that really stirred up some people and then was whipped, beaten, nailed to a cross and killed. I see why people would reject that when we don't understand what's actually happening. Well, Peter tells us he's not rejected by people, but he's chosen and he's honored by God. And maybe your Bible translation says precious instead of honored. That's a great translation, but, but I, I read on why the CSB changed it because precious sometimes, when we think of precious, we think of fragile. It's not fragile. He's not weak, valuable, worth something. Do you know that Peter's not Peter's actual real name? It's Simon. Peter's a nickname that God gives to Peter and it's one of those nicknames where, like, uh, well, the examples I wrote are like, it's if we called Vince a youngster or if we called me Bullseye. Vince isn't young, and I'm not a good shot. Like, it's the opposite of what reality is. is. Peter wasn't a rock. That's what Peter means. He was very unstable. He's, he's talked about in the Gospels more than any other disciple. He speaks in the Gospels more than any other disciple speaks. He was instrumental in the New Testament church. And so what that means is we have a lot of examples of Peter not being a rock. He rages. When, when Jesus comes to get arrested, Peter draws a sword out and just starts blindly swinging at this group of men who are coming to arrest Jesus. He wouldn't have been called bullseye either because he cut off a guy's ear, but I promise that's not what he was aiming for. I mean, that kind of faith, like, I'm going to fight this army for you, Jesus, only hours later to deny that he knew Jesus to three people, and one of which was a little girl around a fire. And that's not firm. That's not a rock. 
Did you know in the early church we have stories in Acts of Peter getting embarrassed that he was caught eating with Gentiles? And so Paul has to rebuke Peter. How frustrating must that have been? You're Peter. You were with Jesus. He's not a solid rock. Sometimes he is, sometimes he isn't. That's one of the beauties of Peter. If you have your your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Jesus talks to to Peter in a way here that helps us understand this foundation, this rock that's meant to be built upon. In, in, In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, it says this, And when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders and told them uh, to tell no one that he was the Messiah. That passage is where the Catholic church gets their theology of the Pope. That passage is where they believe that God is saying Peter was the first pope. Upon this, rock. Remember, Peter means rock. But what did Peter say? He says to Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen one of God. You are the living God. It's upon that rock, that proclamation of belief in Jesus Christ coming to save, that Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. Not on Peter. Peter's not a stable foundation. The next verse in that story, if you you have it, the next verse is Jesus saying to his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And Peter, having upon his high horse, because he said something good to Jesus, pulls Jesus aside, and he's like, listen, Jesus, we're not going to let that happen to you. You've got to stop talking that way. In this foundation of the church, if that's what you believe, Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. So if you believe that he's the Pope, then Jesus just called the Pope Satan. It's interesting. It's not on Peter that the foundation of the church is built. It's on the proclamation of what Peter says. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or as Peter says later, the living stone. that is chosen and honored by God, but it's rejected by man. Verse 5. You yourselves as living stones and spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. Remember, the you is y'all. So if, if y'all, yourselves, are living stones, so when we believe in the living stone, we become these living stones. There's, there's a story, I don't know if it's true or not, and I can't remember if it's Spartans or Romans. I kind of get them mixed up in my head. But there is an Egyptian ruler who is visiting the Spartans or the Romans, whichever group you want, they can be yours. And he looks, and the Roman ruler or the Spartan emperor was bragging about the wall that he had built to protect his city from all those invading. And the Egyptian king, the pharaoh, is looking around, and he sees no wall. And so he asks, what wall are you talking about? 
and the Roman and the Spartan, whatever, whoever was, points to the people in the city. He says it's those bricks that are going to protect their neighbors, they're going to protect their families, that are going to protect the city. This is what Peter's saying. If we build our foundation on the living stone, then you and I as believers in Jesus Christ become living stones and we're added to this wall. We're not good by ourselves. We're just one rock. But together, built upon the foundation of Christ, we're placed up, building this spiritual house. It's not made with lumber. It's not made with bricks. It's not made with sheet metals. There's no AC or heater mentioned. It's people. It's cliche in our part of the world, but it's true. We're not called to go to church. We're called to be the church. However, we need, you hear me, that phrase is incomplete. The church is not an individual person. It's a gathered body of believers. And in the old covenant, the priesthood was all Levites. Did you know that? You had to be born to a certain family and from a certain, you had to do certain rules, make sure they make sure you were holy so that you could go and offer the sacrifices. But what Peter is telling us is, is that no longer are we that way. We're living stones, we're the spiritual house, we're being built to a holy priesthood that now you and I, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, can offer these sacrifices, these spiritual sacrifices to God. So what do we need to do? Do we need to buy bulls? Do we need to get goats? Do we need to go get some doves? Change this table, we can get the nativity off and we'll start sacrificing animals. Is that what Peter is telling us to do here? No. We're new covenant Christians. Jesus is the perfect lamb, the sacrifice once for all believers. Our sacrifices are not animals, but our very lives are what we sacrifice. Our work, our homes, our vehicles, our desires, our holidays, our traditions, everything, all of our beings, everything to the core of it, who we are is sacrificed for the glory of God. And I love that, that, that Peter, has a, Peter has a subtle like dig on us here, and it's important for us to see. He doesn't say to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. He doesn't finish there. Did you catch the last three words? Through Jesus Christ. Because our sacrifices are not enough. Our lives are not good enough. Our cars are not fancy enough. Our homes are not clean enough. Our traditions aren't pure enough. Everything that we sacrificed must go through Jesus Christ who perfects us and grows us in him. And if that seems like a lot, it is. But that's the call of Christianity. Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture... See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone to the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. I want to point out just a small little thing here we often miss because we just jump to the text of Scripture. Do you see what Peter's doing? He's talking about Scripture in the Bible. The Bible is telling us the Bible is what we need to hold to and cling to. That it's this Scripture as it stands. This chosen and honored stone that is predicted, right? Peter's talked many times. We're in chapter 2, multiple times throughout this letter. Peter's already emphasized the importance of the Bible for us. He told us earlier that the prophets longed to see this grace that was going to come. They wrote about it not knowing what was really going to happen, just knowing that it was from the Lord. And now Peter's going to quote these prophets. Mine, I don't know if your Bible does it, puts it in bold. That means it's a direct quote from the Old Testament. 
He's saying Jesus is this cornerstone. So if you're looking to build a house, you have to build this foundation, and then you have these, these workers who would sift through these piles of rocks, and they would look for the perfect rock to set it as the cornerstone. The rest of the house is going to be built upon what that rock is and where that rock is set. And they find the perfect cornerstone, and what they do is they cast it aside and they reject it. Because they don't believe that that cornerstone is worth building a life on. Maybe they doubt that Jesus is real. Maybe they want security, but they also want to have fun. We went to a, a comedy show last night, and, and one of my, it's one of my favorite comedians. Um, and one of his opening acts talks about how he was, uh, about how religious basically means you're just not allowed to have fun. He said it in a more funny way than that, but that's what he said. And even the comedian I loved, which it's a comedy show, so I get like it's a joke. Talked about how he was born with parents who were very religious, and so he didn't get to have fun. Maybe that's one of the reasons people reject the cornerstone. Maybe it's other reasons. Whatever it is, unbelievers, the world, reject Jesus. Toss him aside. But what does the text keep telling us? So, uh, verse 7, So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. The very stone Jesus himself could support their life, could give them all of the hope that they need, but instead they reject that stone, and so they trip over it, and it doesn't break, it breaks them. Have you ever noticed that when someone stubs their toe, they don't say Buddha's name? Have you ever noticed that it's Jesus whose name is profaned? It's because deep in our hearts and deep in our souls, even in the most secular of people, we know that Jesus is God. And those who do not believe disobey the word. And Peter tells us something that's kind of uncomfortable. He says they were destined to do this. Right, I'll, I'll keep reading verse 8. Uh, a stone uh, stumbled over a, a rock to trip over. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word and they were destined to for this. We must understand what he's saying here because it's important. The trajectory of all humanity, the moment we're born in our life that we're living is that we are sinful human beings who are rebelling against God. Our destiny before Christ is judgment. Death. And God is just, and so no injustice can be allowed with God. Because God saves some, we often think, well, why doesn't God save all? Why do some get salvated, others, others It's called justice. We get what we deserve. When we are given what we earn, that's justice. We've earned God's wrath. That's what our sin is. We've rebelled against God. We've rebelled against the king of the universe, the creator of all things. Any human king who has a group of insurgents rebel against them will put them to death, will squash them, will ruin their insurgents. Yet when it comes to the king God, we often are like, well, why is God so harsh when we rebel against his rule and reign? Justice is when we get what we deserve. Mercy is what we get when we're not punished. Mercy is what we get when we're given something we don't deserve. 
So when God saves, it's not injustice. The wrath has been paid on Jesus Christ. The wrath of God was satisfied on the cross of Jesus. Those who disobey the word are acting in their own nature. Nobody's forcing them to disobey. That's simply who they are. They need Jesus as the cornerstone, but right now he is simply a stumbling block to them. He's keeping them from enjoying the things in life that they really want to do because as soon as they get some speed, wham, face first. It's not injustice, it's mercy. So what is the life with Jesus' living foundation? What is the life with Jesus' cornerstone? What does it look like for us? It's probably one of the more famous verses in all of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. see Jesus is chosen by God that's been mentioned a few times here and so are his followers a chosen race Jesus is a priest sacrificing himself as the perfect lamb and now you and I if we're believers in Jesus Christ we are royal we're prince and princesses who are also these priests we've been made like Jesus Jesus is holy and he brings about a kingdom of God, a holy nation so our primary citizenship is not American or Mozambican Rather, it's a citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And what Peter's telling these people is in the Old Testament, God made a nation. And in the New Testament, he's making another nation. But this isn't a nation that you're born into. You have to be in the right family. You have to fill out the right paperwork and transfer your citizenship over. This is a citizenship that comes from belief in Jesus Christ and belief in Christ alone. And we're made a people for his own possession. You alone are not a race. You alone are not a priesthood. You alone are not a nation. We're brought in to be part of the people of God, had chosen possession for himself. Why? So that we may proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Peter talked about this earlier, where everything before Christ is meaningless and empty. And we don't even know it. Those who who live in darkness don't understand that they live in darkness. They don't understand that they need Jesus. They understand that there's this desire in their hearts for meaning or worth or value or identity, but they don't understand how to gain it. And so they just cling to anything and everything that they can. Hobbies and alcohol and whatever it is, entertainment that comes, and they try to fill that hole. But the truth for them and what so many people learn is you can't. You can't fill that hole. Whatever Netflix show you're watching that occupies your time has an end date. Whatever you try to fill it with, it'll work for a little bit. It may numb the pain, but when it gets calm and when it gets quiet, it leaves a hole that cannot be filled. What those people need to hear from you and I this racehood that we are, this this priesthood that we are, this nation that we are, this people for God's own possession is at the very core of who we are. Why we don't have that same emptiness that they do is because we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and we proclaim that praise to people who are lost in darkness. 
Those of us who are saved, we live in the light of Jesus Christ. Do we hide it under a bushel? No. We let it shine. We're not a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession so that we can isolate ourselves from the world. Right? We didn't move to Ira so we can get away from all the sinful people on the other side of Scurry County, amen, although we're glad we're over here. We don't build up these walls that we don't let people into. We don't just sit back in our recliners, eat popcorn, and watch the rest of the world burn because they don't have it figured out like we do. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. We are called to bring a gospel light to those who are trapped in darkness and have no idea that they are. We are called to be living stones. Not stones that are cold and dead and laying there useless collecting moss. We're called to be planted on a firm foundation who, when our lives shake and earthquakes, earthquakes come and tsunamis come and tornadoes run through, the foundation holds us strong and we can't be uprooted. Because the reality is, especially now, that we have a group of people around us who are largely scared of what the future is going to hold. They may not admit it, but that's the way the world is. They're scared. They're lonely. Longing for true uh, belief. That's why men, middle-aged men, are committing suicide at higher rates than almost any other point in history before. Because these men are realizing that everything that they've poured their lives into is not of value. It's worthless and it's empty. It's darkness. But you and I, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, have the hope for them. I love fishing, but it can't fill that hole. I love hunting, not good at shooting, but it can't fill that hole. I love sports, but sports can't fill that hole. And I love my family, but my family can't fill that hole. One of the dangers that, that, that we face in particular here is so much of the world doesn't look like what we want it to, and so our natural response to the world is not to lovingly call them out of it, but to hate them and distance ourselves from them. You can flip your Bible upside down and thumb through all the pages. You'll not find one verse that says you should hate. Outside of sin. Instead, the call is to love the world. But what does that look like? Love means to desire what is best for somebody else. And what is best for a world that's living in darkness is the light of the gospel of Jesus. We have these, these packages and these gifts that we've packed for, for a couple families that we're going to give to Scurry County. And these are great and these are awesome, but these things will not fill them. Our hope is to plant seeds of the gospel that might sprout in these families. We can do social causes, and social causes are great, and we should do things to help out. We should feed the poor and, and clothe, feed the hungry and clothe the poor. That's it. But to do so without the gospel is waste. The world is dark and empty and the people don't even know it. Listen to what Peter says in verse 10. You were once not a people, but now you are a people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Peter's saying is you used to be alone, but now you're not alone. You used to be getting the punishment that you deserved, but now you're not going to get the punishment that you deserve. You get the mercy of God and the grace of Jesus Christ lavished upon you. That living in the emptiness of the world, chasing whatever thing that you've wanted to be chasing, you were always looking for something to distract or to fill you, but now you have what actually fills you, Jesus Christ. You've received this mercy of Jesus. You deserve eternal punishment by God's mercy and God's mercy alone. You don't get that. Instead, you get Jesus. And Jesus graces you. He lavishes upon you His righteousness. So now you don't retreat from the world. You go share that good news with other people. We used to be those things, but people walk around us all the time that are not a people. That have not received God's mercy. Charles Spurgeon has a famous quote that if people are going to die and go to hell, then let them trip over our bodies as we cling to them and try to drag them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we believe that the gospel is true, and we believe that we are the ones who have this truth, and the world does not have this truth, and it means there's an eternal suffering that happens for them, an eternal glory that happens for us, we cannot risk sitting in our huddle and not sharing the gospel with them and living lives that's going to show them. God came to us. The least we can do is go to our neighbors. we show them mercy we've got to stop being surprised when unbelievers act like unbelievers we've got to start living a a life of, of mercy that doesn't accept things that are against the word but that teaches that shows that loves invite unbelievers into your house and let them look into how you live root a life that's rooted on Jesus If we've learned anything from the last three or four years, we have no idea what the future holds. But one thing is certain. The foundation of Jesus will not crack. It will not shake, and it will not be broken. And those tethered to that foundation, those who are built upon the foundation of Jesus, don't fade away. We proclaim the praises of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we get to gather together this morning and we get to proclaim your praises. That Jesus, you are the perfect foundation who holds us together. And God, that doesn't give us just this right to turn our noses up at other people, but God, it helps us to see that we were needy and that we're sinners and that there's a lost world in darkness that needs to hear, needs to see your marvelous light. Give us motivation. Calm our nerves. Help us to speak your truth. Speak your gospel to lost and dying people around us that you've placed us around. God, you didn't place us in a first century Asia Minor to hear these letters. You've placed us here in this mission field. God, help us to understand that we are either missionaries or we are the mission field. There's no in-between. Help us to grow in you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Daryl and Tina are going to lead us in worship. Let me encourage you.